podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this first series, I'll take you to the key markets of the world where you can do business and do it well. I'll guide you through the economics, politics and social history of each place and talk to an expert about the tricks and traps of doing business in each particular market. But first, strap yourself in because in this episode, we're off to China. On my first trip to China, I went to Shenzhen as part of a trade union delegation. Shenzhen's in the Pearl River Delta, which is the area of China that Deng Xiaoping picked to be the the vanguard of modern China and the move towards a market system. I went to a factory and I asked the factory manager, do you have workers' compensation in China? Well, it got translated and it came back, no, if the workers break anything, they don't have to compensate us. Well, it wasn't quite what I was asking and it may have been a bit of a language issue, but what it really spun home to me was that there's this huge reserve army of labour of Chinese workers coming from the fields, from the countryside, to these you know, brand new jobs in factories, and so they were willing to work for whatever wages and conditions, and that was the story of China at that time. 20 years later, I took a group of MBA students from the Australian Graduate School of Management at the University of New South Wales to the same factory in Shenzhen. But the environment was very different. I asked the factory manager, how was business? He actually said that he couldn't keep hold of his workers because most of them wanted to get a nice air-conditioned office job nearby as Shenzhen had really grown in its white-collar employment. And so he had to impose or offer piece rates to the factory, sort of a a semi-capitalist system, to provide the incentives to keep people in the factory. China has traditionally been a nation of shippers, relying on export-dependent, low-wage manufacturing. Now it wants to be a nation of shoppers. It wants to boost its local domestic consumption and investment as its middle class grows. This is really great for Australian businesses because you've not only got agriculture and mining, but also you've got this amazing middle-class base and they're building all these second- and third-tier cities, these little country towns of 20 million people, 33 million people that all want railways and airports and civic buildings, which is providing great opportunities for architects, construction companies and services companies. China really is booming, not just in Beijing, not just in Shenzhen, not just in Shanghai, but right around the second and third tier cities as it really drives this incredible urbanisation. For more on how to do business in China, I'm joined by entrepreneur Jessica Wilson. At just 21, Jess founded an e-commerce app called Stash, which has taken China by storm. Jess, we'll get into doing business in China more broadly in a second, but first, 
Tell us about Stashed. Yes. So Stashed is an online shopping app and the whole premise is we're connecting Western fashion and beauty brands through to the China millennial market. So the millennial market in China is a casual 415 million um, and their buying habits have just flipped the last 24, 36 months. So now it's more on trend to be different than the same and they've got a massive fascination with the West. So with Stashed, we've established a plug and play model to be able to localise them for China and then be their um, access point to China. Now, you've got a pretty amazing story about China and how you became an entrepreneur. Do you want to yes. start with the beginning? With China specifically, it was a very right place, right time, which has led through to now, I guess. So the way we launched into China was through a reality TV series, which oh was gosh. a cross between Shark Tank and The Apprentice, is the best way to explain it, <laughs> called The Next Unicorn. Um, unicorn in tech world means a billion dollar business. And what it was, was a big VC firm in China put on this global search for the next startup to do very well in China. And they went around to Australia, the US, India, Asia, um, all around um, Israel as well, and heard from thousands of different pitches. And they selected 55 teams to fly to Shanghai for the finals. Um, and we pitched to the ex-CEO of Alibaba, seed investors in Baidu, seed investors in PayPal, GGV, Zen Fund, a lot of the leading VC firms in China. And um, very long story short, Stashed made it to the grand finals of that TV series. Um, we placed with the bronze trophy. We were the last Western team. I was the last female founder. And to put that back into TV world, it aired over six episodes. Each episode aired to 15 million people. Um, and it was like Shark Tank and The Apprentice. They built up characters around all of the applicants. Um, so that was essentially our launch pad into China. We made it to the grand finals and we aired on six episodes to 15 million people. So you were a country girl from Australia Yes. on a Chinese TV I show. I know, who would have thought it? Yeah, I grew up on a very small farm town. Um, I was one of six in my year in school. So I grew up on a farm out just outside Coffs Harbour. In New South Wales? In New South Wales. In, in Australia, yeah. Yeah, and um, started my first business when I was 16 years old, um, which was ironically running events on the paddocks that my family had. I pitched to my parents that if we run these events in these paddocks, I can actually make quite a bit of money, and I did. What were these, 21st birthdays? or They, were, they started off as um, formal after parties, formal events, then we scaled into 16th, um, 18th and 21sts. Um, and then I made enough money to put myself through my first year of uni, just from two years of trade, I guess, through that business. So really, Jess, you know, you've become an entrepreneur, but China is really an accident for you, would you say? It was in the beginning. Um, so I was asked to be a contestant on the TV series. Didn't expect to go through to the China um, pitching section and didn't expect to get as far as what we did in the show. But the really great thing about The Next Unicorn was all the judges became your mentors. So I told them, I sat down with them around Stash and I said, pull my business apart. Tell me what's going to work. Tell me what's not. Is it worth me investing my time into going into the China market? And what I found from those conversations was a lot had to change. The business model we had prior to doing that TV show wasn't going to work. We didn't know enough about localization at all, but I did pick up on the feedback they were giving me was this will work in China if you make a whole heap of changes. And then it just came back to me to be like, am I going to take the massive risk or do we treat this as a really interesting experience? And we decided to take the risk on it. What were the challenges that you faced when you started? I think to begin with us, it was just the level of localization that you need. So for example, actually, when we initially the first episode went to air, we 
were all gathered around our analytics because we knew this was airing to 15 million people and the episode aired and finished and we had 11 downloads. So I'm sitting there with my dev team and shareholders and our team in general and we're like, what has gone on here? Um, and over the next two, three weeks, we really delved in and we figured out that our login processes for the app weren't right. We weren't targeting the right app stores. We didn't have as localised of a language or payments or operations that we needed to have. And over a few month time frame, we refined a lot of those things. And then by episode three, we were trending as one of the best new apps in the Tencent app store, which is the largest app store in China. So we very much so on the fly learned what we needed to and then made a lot of iterations when it came to localization. So what sort of business opportunities do you see in China when you survey the landscape? I, just picking up on context over there, China kind of make their own niches. So for example, pawpaw ointment over here, the red pawpaw ointments. There's a new rule in a lot of chemists now that you can't buy more than 12 or 18 pawpaw ointments in one transaction because China will literally go buy them out, sell them via Daigo's, via WeChat stores, and that's become a massive niche in itself. A lot of reasons why that's popular is because that's a Australian-made organic product. When it comes to things that do well in China, a lot of it is the organic, anything Australian-made that has that stamp on it. Australian Leather Ugg is one of the brands that we have with Stashed and one of the most popular reason being is it's got the Australian made mark. Anything organic when it comes to produce does very well. Um, Organic skincare does very well. I think the general rule of thumb when it comes to Australia and China is the Australian made mark. If you've got that, that's a massive plus. If it's organic um, as well as Australia made, that's another massive plus. And then just being aware that China, once they find their little niches, that it, the scale is something that we can't even comprehend. And the poor poem is a really good example of that. Explain Daigo. Daigos are essentially people that go and they'll buy mass in your stock. Baby um, powder. Yeah, exactly. Perfect example. Baby powder, pawpaw ointments. They'll buy beauty products. They'll buy anything um, a lot of the time. A lot of Daigos have their own niches, but it can span majority of things. And they'll sell them through multiple platforms a lot of the time. So they could either set up their own WeChat store or they'll go and trade them on Taobao or they'll go and look at stockists and pull them into stockists. It's essentially a sales agent almost, but they know the margins that they're supposed to be working in. Um, but that's a massive market when it comes to more of like the poor ointments and the organic products and, and those type things. The risk with that is you don't have control over your brand. Um, something I'm a very firm believer in is, is with Stashed is going into a new market, you want to position your brand in the right way. So a lot of the risk with Daigos is they'll bring a product into China. If you saturate the products too much, then they can essentially do sales on your product without you knowing. So that's a massive risk. Um, Whereas with Stashed, we like to align the brand with the right influencers and the right stockers if that's the way they choose to go and having the right social media strategy because at the end of the day, you are entering a new market. So Daigos are a bit of a risk, but they do have a massive scale if you get the right Daigos as well. So it's just you've got to play up your risk versus reward with them. Because you have this phenomenon with Chinese tourists and students just buying 
Masses. Baby milk formula. Masses of it. That's the thing. Once there's a niche, like the pauper ointment baby milk formula, now there's goat's milk formula, which is really popular, steaks. Like once you've got those niches, then the demand is ridiculous. So, for example, using um, the baby milk formula, they'll have likely a Tmall store, Taobao store, JD.com, VIP.com, those platforms when it comes to cross-border trade. And they'll have different agreements based on each platform and how the business is structured. And then they might have a, le- a level of digos, which will be trading through their WeChat stores. And then where we like to come in is on top of that when it comes to your brand positioning. So how do you want to be seen when um, consumers are doing their due diligence on your brand? Like, have you got your Weibo set up? Are you having the right influencers post about the campaign? Like, it just is such a complex way that you pull it all together. But that's an example of um, how one of those how one of those products will go in there. But it's very um, segmented when it, when it comes to the types of companies that you work with. With China, there's so many of these second and third tier cities, you know, little country towns like Qingdao and Wuhan and Chongqing that have 33 million people in them. Just a little country town. How does that affect your business or is it so digital that it doesn't make a difference? For us, it doesn't necessarily make a difference. It more so when it comes to the second, third tier cities comes back onto who our logistics partner is. So at the moment, we've got an agreement with DHL in which we can ship product from Australia into China in three to five days, which is very express. And That's better than Australia. Exactly, yeah. And our brands also don't pay for delivery either, so we take on that cost. Um, so when it comes to the second, third tier cities, it comes into account when we're marketing and the influencers we're aligning with and what their reach is, but operationally it doesn't affect us because our model we don't hold stock. We don't have warehouses in China. It's all drop ship. It also comes down to marketing and then within that marketing, which regions we want to focus on. Now, you have this amazing story of, of the, you know, the, the next unicorn, the reality TV show. Do you think for another business going to China who can't get on TV, mm-hmm. how would they get their, their foot in the door? When I look at China, I think of it in kind of buckets. There's so much that you need to learn when it comes to legal operations, marketing, and then also just servers, tech, and everything set up on that front. First step, I would download WeChat. Um, I would download Weibo if you're a business, and I would speak to businesses who have been in China themselves. Do a lot of your own due diligence when it comes to the market within your segment as well. Um, But when it comes to, say, the business and legal side, there's just the starting points, like your trademarks. If you're going to be hosted in China, you need to get a WOFI set up. There's a lot of different building blocks within each of those tiers. Um, But to begin with, I'd say speak to those um, companies who have been through it before. And then also just be aware that you're stepping into almost Narnia. Like it's completely different to what we have here. In China, they've got the China firewall. So no Facebook, no Google, no Instagram, nothing that we're used to using. So you need to be aware that you're going to need to train yourself on to how to use these new platforms and then figure out how to scale those platforms marketing-wise to get traction to your business in the first place. So I would start with speaking to companies, getting your base set up, so all the licenses you need, and then starting to have a look at WeChat and Weibo and then how you engage with those platforms to market your business. Let's think of the, the three W's just for Chinese for beginners. So WeChat yes. is, is how you communicate with your with your friends and your yeah, customers. Yeah, so definitely when it comes to just having a team in China, nobody uses Gmail or Google, so WeChat is your go-to. And what about Weibo? That's like Twitter Weibo's or how would you Weibo is across between Facebook and Twitter. So the difference between WeChat and Weibo is WeChat's a closed platform, so very internal, but you can do a lot of promotions through WeChat obviously as well. Weibo's an open platform, so more like your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. 
So a lot of influencers in China are going to use Weibo to promote brands, yeah. So I'm at the University of New South Wales. We have this incredible you know, Chinese student population and potential. So my Weibo has many more followers than than Twitter or Facebook, just because that's what people use. Oh, definitely. I mean, just to give an idea of the scale, the way they call them KOLs work in China, which is a key opinion leader, which is essentially China's version of Instagram influencers, a grassroots KOL, which is the lowest tier, ranges between 300K to 1.2 million. A grassroots Instagram influencer is like 8K through to 20K, just to give an idea of scale. So engaging with KOLs, they get a lot more cut through than what they do here as well, mainly due to the way in which people shop in China is very different to here because people do a lot more due diligence on products because over in China on some platforms, you'd order a green dress, receive it and it's black or you order it in one size and you receive it and it's another one. So there's a lot of fraudulent products in China, which means when consumers are actually going to make an order, they do a lot more due diligence. So they'll look to Weibo accounts, they'll look to KOLs. When a KOL posts about something, it's a lot more, um, I guess, they're putting their personal brand on it. So people trust a lot more as well. Explain the last W, Woofy. A Woofy, yeah. Wholly owned foreign entity. So if you want to be trading in China um, and setting up to have a base there, that's one of the steps that you need to take. So that's being able to set up your business as a wholly owned foreign entity in China. Um, there's a few different ways in which you can set up your business, but that's probably the most common and, and easiest one to do. Now, when you went into China, you didn't have Mandarin no. language. Is, is, do you need Mandarin as a language? Um, I still don't. Ni hao. Ni hao, and I know little bits and pieces. She, she, yeah. I know she, she. Um, But I think when going into China, you need to definitely have somebody in your team who speaks Mandarin. That's a given. But with China, as long as you can have somebody within your team going to meetings with you who speaks the language... What I find really interesting is alongside the language, there's also the kind of hidden undertone of the way things work in China. Customs or culture. Yeah, exactly. So even with how you engage in a meeting, I find fascinating because here in the West, you'll have a meeting, you have an, an agenda and you go through all the points as soon as you get there and then your meeting's over within an hour. You go into a meeting in China, the same hour block, around 30 to 45 minutes is spent around your visions, what your family does, where you want to be in the future, how we can collaborate together, what friends I know and you know. The great friendship exactly. between Sesht and uh, us and the glorious, yeah, yeah. and so on. Yes. And then the final 15 minutes is when you actually get to why you're there. So that's when you, you go through those points of that agenda. So in China, it's a lot more relationship-based than what it is in the West. And once you make those connections, people bend over backwards for you as well. So it's a slower burn when it comes to doing business, but what the payoff is, is really, really strong. So Australians or Westerners will call it small talk, mm. but it's actually intrinsic to the meeting. I really like the way people do business in China. I think it's important because you get to know the people you're doing business with a lot more and you've got those commonalities and you know that once there's some sort of bond there that they'll bend over backwards for you. Do you socialise in China with your business partners and customers? Yeah, no, you have to because it's all very relationship-based. So definitely we do a lot of lunches and dinners and there's a lot of a lot of that when it comes to doing meetings over in China, yeah. Have there been any funny incidents where 
something hasn't quite gone right or you've learnt from something you shouldn't have done or? Oh, just, I think just the language is quite funny because I was doing lessons at one point. I can't remember the exact phrase, but Mandarin's very complex and that there's four different tones. And then when you say a tone wrong in a sentence, it can mean something completely different. Um, so I remember I got that wrong one time and it was a little bit awkward. I think I was trying to attempt to say something in a business meeting, which meant something completely wrong. So that was interesting. But they're very forgiving, aren't they? Oh yeah, trying. no, the fact that you're trying is a very big plus for them. So even just saying ni hao and being able to introduce yourself in your business, they find really impressive. So Jess, we often hear in Asian cultures about saving face, particularly in China. Have you had experience of this? I do. (laughs) When it comes to saving face, what it is is in a context of doing business is Sometimes when it's a yes to what you're saying to them verbally, the undertones don't mean yes, they mean no. (laughs) And what that means is saving face essentially means that they don't want to embarrass you by saying no. So they'll say yes to you when they actually mean no. Um, And it's this whole concept of saving face in that I want to save you from the embarrassment of no um, in doing those business dealings. So something important again to take into account is having somebody in your team who is locally from China who can pick up on the undertones. Sometimes it'll be body language. Sometimes it'll be the tone of the voice in which they say something. Sometimes it's things that we from the Western culture just didn't grow up with, so can't pick up on. And if I was to tell you yes to a question, you would take yes as the answer. But there is a lot more complexities to China and that is a a big difference is the concept of saving face. Is there anything you should never mention in China? (laughs) Um, Yes, I had a a co-worker one time who was very new to the um, company and we went into a meeting and he mentioned uh, Google over there and he said, so what's like, what is this bringing in comparison to Google? And it was like, okay, you don't mention the companies which aren't allowed in China. So that would probably be one of the basics. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. When you think about things like IP and risk and being paid or not, do you find China actually quite a good place in terms of those It's a lot better issues. than what people think. Um, so when it comes to securing IP over in China, it's based on a first to file. So based on you can get your trademark filed first over in China, which I would have as a very first step in doing business in China, then it's all based back on that. And when it comes to doing business in China and the contracts and how things are rolled out, because how they do business over there is very much so based on yourself and generating that bond and connection and being able to be very much so aligned, then there is a lot of kind of undertone respect throughout the whole thing as well. Uh, there was once a saying that um, a businessman who doesn't go to China for fear of losing his shirt mm-hmm. loses his pants in America. Mm-hmm. Is that because people actually do go into China more more carefully with IP, with contracts, or they might go into the US or the UK a little bit Hapdash I think so, really because I think China gets a bit of a bad rap when it comes to things like that. It's not as bad as what we foresee in the modern age now. So I think people do go into it a lot more wary than what they would go into other more similar markets. But something I think to keep in mind is just the pure scale of China. It's ridiculous when it comes to the population, how that population is changing and the opportunity at hand. And in my opinion, if you're a business which has a product, you'd be silly not to start looking at China just based on how the economy is changing. Something I find really fascinating is the 2030 rule. And what that means is by the year 2030, the middle class in China, which is 300 million, will reach 850 million. 
And then because of that rise in population, and when you start to look at the global economy in context, the middle class spend will be 22% China and 7% the US. So we're in the midst of a massive economic shift. And then you couple that with what the government in China is investing in, and they work in five-year plans. And their most current five-year plan has been investing in entrepreneurship, cross-border trade, collaborating with the West. So there's a lot of things moving when it comes to China and them welcoming Western products. And then you break it down into BIT. So Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, the three main companies in China who have a stake in majority of the most successful businesses in China and what they're doing and what they're investing in and them building out accelerators to then work with Western companies such as Stashed. Um, So I think now you'd be silly not to look at China if you're a startup or if you own a product just based on how the landscape's moving. Do you need the government badge, whether it be the Chinese government or Australian or state government, on your side to do business in China? I mean, it certainly helps um, just because how China's structured. So we just touched on before with it when it comes to the BAT, so Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. If one of those businesses are somewhat aligned with your business and they're quite tied into the government in China as well, that is going to help you. We've seen cases like, for instance, when WhatsApp just got cut off in China because they can. (laughs) So definitely having that alignment will help. So even if you've got some sort of connection into the government or Austrade or IP Australia or AusCham or whatever it might be here in Australia, and by all means, I'm a really firm believer in that just saying, I don't have a connection, they shouldn't stop you. Go and make a connection, reach out to somebody on LinkedIn, meet somebody at their office, make those connections before you go over there would probably be another step. Um, And then once you're over in China, if you are looking at strategic partners, then think about it from that perspective in that who's tied into the decision makers long term so that something can't happen to like what happened to WhatsApp happened to your business. Now, for companies out there, even someone without your your drive, Mm -hmm. if they were going to China, what would be the the tips you'd give them that they must do when they go to to China? China? Um, I think people have this kind of vision that I want to go out after global markets, but China is a lot more complex. So step one is go there. <laughs> go there, go to Shanghai, go to Beijing, go to a second tier city, go to wherever you want to do business and just pick the brains of people. I think if you just go there and if you, at least if you know one person there or if you go and you look at different meetups, just submerse yourself in the culture and network and the more you network, the more you'll figure out the steps as you go. So download WeChat would be one of the first ones. Start to understand social media because social media is such a part of this day and age over there. So I'd start to do that. But even look at companies um, like even KPMG, for example, who have offices over in China and has a lot of resource or Austrade that has a lot of resource or Fishburners that has a lot of resource. So look at Western companies which have an existing presence over in China, go meet with them, ask them and tell them about your business and take their suggestions as well, because they all have a mix mindset wise of Western and China. So step one, and I think the most important step is go there. Step two is figure out the commonalities between businesses here, which are already in China, align with them. And step three is just, it's up to you. So you need to learn and learn quickly and iterate and just figure it out because China's a lot more complex than what the Western world is. But if you've got a problem solving mindset, then you can open up some incredibly huge um, doors and timing wise, like we've spoke about is beyond perfect at the moment. Well, thanks Jess for your insights. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Sure, sure. <laughs> sure, sure.
Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.